HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working and event space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meet and 3, our weekly food news roundup. Last month, Hurricane Florence walloped parts of North Carolina. According to the Weather Channel, it was the wettest tropical storm to ever hit the Tar Heel State. So how did the restaurant industry respond? Some helped FEMA weather the storm, while others got to work feeding people on the ground. We just walked in and said, we know how to cook, what can we do? They said, I need you guys to just cook 150 pork loins, and we were just like, uh, okay. (laughs) Now the attention needs to be on Florence's long-term effect on North Carolina's farming community. The general mood of farmers is one of certainly resilience and almost feels like it's the normal course of business to just get hit by a gigantic hurricane and need to just keep on going. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today, my guest is Nick Sharma. He is the writer, photographer, and recipe developer behind the award-winning blog, A Brown Table. His weekly column, A Brown Kitchen, appears in the San Francisco Chronicle. Nick lives in Oakland, California. His first cookbook, Season, Big Flavors, Beautiful Food is on sale now. Welcome to the show, Nick Sharma. Hi, thank you for having me tonight. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. I know you flew a long way (laughs) to come all the way to Bushwick, Brooklyn today. You're in the midst of your book tour. Congratulations. Thank you. Your book is gorgeous. It's gotten more publicity than any cookbook I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh, wow. Thank you. (laughs) That's a good thing. It is a good thing. No, it's a phenomenal thing. I mean, it's... um, for someone's, you know, first cookbook, it's just it's it's just a testament to you and how much your food resonates with so many different types of people and I think also shows just, you know, how hungry we are for for more diverse writers, for more diverse food. Um, 
just the fact that it's it's made such an impact like just far and wide already it's it's just been a really incredible thing to watch so i'm very grateful you made Thank the you. time to be here today especially coming right off a plane and coming all the way to bushwick <laughs> of course anything for you well thank you nick and i know it's really all about the pizza but i it will is, take yeah. it yeah <laughs> fair enough that's how we lured you here that's how we lure all the good guests here <laughs> um so let's get in uh, to the story of your book a little bit you mm-hmm. you grew up in mumbai i did yeah yeah, you have you had a pretty interesting upbringing. I mean, just the fact that your your father's Hindu from northern India, and correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong here. You're your right. mother's Roman Catholic, and she's from Goa. Her family is from Goa. She's actually from Bombay, born and brought up in Bombay. Oh, okay. Her, her family is from Goa. Okay, um, which was Portuguese. It used to be a Portuguese colony, correct? And the food is heavily Portuguese. Yeah. Right. Extremely. So, yeah. Okay. So what was what was food like in your home growing up? So I didn't think anything about it until I was an adult because as a kid, either you hate what you're served as a child because your parents kind of force you to eat stuff right. or um, you just have to go with the flow, which is pretty much what happened. It was either those two things. But I really didn't pay attention to how important it was at the time. But my parents, because they came from such different parts of the country, the food their food was so different. Uh, my dad's food used to be predominantly vegetarian mm-hmm. uh, because his family was very was a conservative Brahmin Hindu family, and then my mom's family was heavily influenced by the colonialism, uh, so like the Portuguese and then eventually the British when they came. So their food was much more Western driven, and a lo- you know I hear these comments about Indians like don't have cakes or anything. But for me, that was a very, you know, I hear these statements sometimes and it's such a bizarre thing because I grew up eating cakes, which are considered a part of my mom's culture. And they're served at traditional holidays and events. So these were the things that would come at the table. So dinner would be kind of like a mishmash, if you will. Mm-hmm. You'd have, um, you'd have, say, rotis, which are from the north. Uh, we did not always eat dal, like as some people write, you know, dal is like, the Indian staple that's not true. Uh, my mom would make like a beef or chicken curry and would serve that. Um, or she would do um, maybe like a stir fried um, beef. A lot of, we ate a lot of seafood because my mom's from the coast. So you'd have fried fish and those kind of things. So it was just all these elements that typically you wouldn't think makes sense on a menu if you were at a restaurant, mm-hmm. but they did at the table. And I don't think my parents were ever paying attention to flavor pairings and all those fancy things at that point. Um, but it worked. And that's how we ate for at least like 19 years of my life. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you can see how much that influenced your cooking now, just the way that you approach flavor. It's not things that necessarily traditionally you would find ever in a restaurant, right. but just the way you approach flavor, it's its such a unique way and it seems so specific to you. And it's so much the journey of of where you come from, where you live now, where you've traveled to all the, all those in between places. It's like, so it's almost musical in a way. It's like the way you think about flavor. It seems um, like you just, you create something new. That's just, I've never, I've never seen food quite like it before. Oh, thank you. Um, So when did you actually start cooking? Uh, When I was a kid, I thought it would be a good idea to, um, so this is what used to happen. My mom used to work during the week. Um, and when we became of the age, she could leave me alone, not my sister. My sister was way younger than me. But um, there were times when I would, I would get Thursdays off from school. And so I would spend, ask and beg to spend the day alone 
on Thursdays at home. So that's <laughs> when all the craziness began. I would go through her notes that were in her closet uh, and she used to keep all her kitchen, uh, I'm sorry, like her recipe cuttings from newspapers and magazines all together in these three large binders. And I would go through them and pick out stuff that I that sounded fascinating. Um, so that's where I learned about maraschino cherries going into an into a chocolate cake, <laughs> um, which I don't do anymore. But that was the thing that she used to love. So she had like four or five different versions of those recipes in there. So I started out learning how to fry an egg first. Um, and then once I got confident with that and they trusted me with their gas stove, then I got a little more adventurous along the way and started doing things in the kitchen. Um, I also found their food a little boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I used to force myself then to cook because I said, oh my gosh, you guys are making the same thing every time. I want something new. So why was it that you wanted that time alone? I mean, was there something... Um I mean, you talk a lot in your in your book, I should say, sure. about like the experience of recognizing that you were gay at a pretty young age uh-huh. and then using or finding cooking to be sort of like an outlet in a way. I mean, was sure. there something to that, like even at a young age that you wanted that time by yourself that you were sort of able to let like a part of yourself? Um, yeah, and was it a freeing experience to sure. be able to cook and, and have that moment by I yourself? One of the things that um, would happen um, if the only options I had on Thursdays I could either stay with my grandmother and my, all my other cousins who were who also got the day off, or I could have some alone time at home and just watch TV all day long. <laughs> so that's really, <laughs> that's, it that's wasn't that it was. deep. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't that deep, no. Um, and then I could also just eat what I wanted. as mm-hmm. to, and like there, was, there were no rules really, so I could, like you said, I could be free. So I could eat, cook. Um, I also like to tinker, and I haven't spoken about this too much, but I also used to like to tinker with my chemistry kit. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so I burnt a lot of sheets. You burnt a lot uh, of yeah, sheets? Yeah, I got into a lot of trouble for that, but I burnt a lot of sheets. But not a lot of food. Not a lot of food, but I did burn sheets. So ultimately a good thing that you became a cook and a writer yeah. and a photographer <laughs> and not a scientist or a doctor? No. <laughs> okay, that, that played out well. Um, but how did cooking play a role in your life growing up, like specifically when you were living in India and you knew that there was no... I mean, legal way or there was no way to just come out at that point in your life? So I didn't know as a child what actually being gay meant. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a term that I actually ended up looking up in books because I I found myself attracted to men, but I couldn't put a word on... And you couldn't Google it. I couldn't Google it at the time. Yeah. So I would go to the school library where they had a section wow. on medical literature and I had to look it up. And how did you even know how to I look just, it up? So there was a book, I think it was either on sexuality or the human body. And I think it was a British book. I don't remember the name now. But um, I remember just like looking at this. Uh, I think it was about like people feeling attraction and s- sexuality. And there was something mentioned about being gay. Mm-hmm. And I kind of read the definition of what it, what it meant at the time. And I think it also included women. I may be wrong, but I think at that time it included women too. And it was basically same-sex attraction. And that actually made me very scared. Did the, did the definition have an opinion or was it just clearly just It was very medical, clinical. like, like yeah. this is what it is. And, um, you know, then it went off into like other things like genetic syndromes and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But it wasn't anyway in a negative light. It was just like a definition more than anything. Yeah. So that made me really scared. And because I, 
you know, everyone around me would get married. You would, ma- if you were, a m- you would marry the opposite sex, basically, and you know, start a life. Of course, it was not part of your culture of your right. upbringing, and so it was really scary. And then I would kind of, in my own like not so subtle way, maybe it was subtle, like try to find out from my parents what they knew. So I remember my parents always saying that you know, like Freddie Mercury is gay, mm-hmm. um, and then Elton John was gay, mm-hmm. and then that was it. They didn't know anyone else besides that. So it became a very... Um, and this was when I was really young. So maybe like 11 or 12 when I was kind of sensing something was different about me. Um, then as I grew older, I remember my dad talking about someone who he worked with. She was married to a guy that didn't live with them. They had a son together. They had a marriage. But he was gay. The son was? The husband. Oh, the husband who no he longer living, lived with them. Yeah, he was separate. Oh. But they had this arrangement that it wouldn't be talked about. And so she could live and do what she wanted. Mm-hmm. And and so that got me really like curious. It just sounded like a really sad way to live a life. Absolutely. Uh, because not only, I feel it's very selfish if I had to do that. So I always thought about it like this. It would be really selfish for me to marry a woman and then destroy her life mm-hmm. just for the sake of me wanting to feel safe. Yeah. And so I never had a relationship with a woman throughout mm-hmm. my life. I've never. Um, and so... It was, I said, I'd rather be single versus just do that because I couldn't handle the guilt of something like that. Uh, that seems very reasonable to me. Yeah. <laughs> I just couldn't. Yeah. You knew that you were eventually probably going to leave India. Yes. I did not have a good childhood in high school because I think the kids sensed. So I used to get bullied, beaten up quite a bit. And I um, kind of knew that I needed an out. Mm-hmm. Um, I also didn't grow up rich, so I also obviously wanted a better future for myself. Um, I was smart enough to get through all my science courses and my math courses in school, so I kind of knew I would either go into medicine at that point or science or some form of research. Um, I ended up going into research. And I knew also that those were the fields that were highly sought after in America, and they were you would get like research funding. So I could actually come, since my parents couldn't afford to send me to school, if I spent the money maybe on just doing the SATs or the GREs or whatever, got high scores, if I got a scholarship, then I could come to America and I would also not be dependent on my parents. Right. Uh, so I'd be free, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so if they decided to disown me if I came out. And so that was, my, in my mind, like my master plan <laughs> always just to get out. So I worked my ass off. Despite the burned sheets. Despite the burned sheets. <laughs> <laughs> and they were really excited because they saw me kind of following like the, the science route. Yeah. Uh, so I had specialized in biochemistry. Uh, I got a degree in microbiology and biochemistry. Then I got a master's because of the, the years are different. Uh, so we go by the British system. And so then I think we need like one or two years that are more in that you guys do here mm-hmm. in undergrad. Uh, just to make up for that. So I actually ended up getting a master's in biochemistry in India, which was treated like a bachelor's. Mm-hmm. And then I came to, um, well, I didn't come yet. So this is what happened. So I applied the first year. I didn't get any acceptances except for one from SUNY. I think it was SUNY Buffalo or something. And my pa- my dad said, we can't afford to send you. So you can try again. But after that, that's it. You're staying here. And I said, I don't have a backup plan, like Yikes. if I'm stuck here and mm-hmm. this is going to be my life and I know I'm gay now, uh, what do I do? Because there's like nothing. And I, I said, you know what? Maybe I just don't think about a backup plan. I just 
push myself through. So over the next year, I think it was a year and a half or two, I took the study, took the test again, and I made it. I got admission, I think, into 12 places, all with like funding and everything. So I was fine. So I had my pick of schools. And I ended up going to um, the College of Medicine at uh, Cincinnati. Um, so I came there, and then I came out within the first couple of months. Um, but even like coming out, even though you know you're gay, you want acceptance from the world, but you also need to accept yourself. And that was where I was struggling. It's such a huge change. It is, To yeah. go from this... It means almost your entire, I mean, your entire life. <laughs> right. Your existence yeah, is Yeah, and then you had so much riding on just this one plan. And I can't even believe, like, I can't even imagine having to create this master plan knowing that you were sort of building an insurance in the case that your parents disowned you. Right. I, I mean, mean, just like the thinking about, like, the privilege of being in a situation where I would never have to think about leaving my home, leaving my country, leaving my family, and having to say goodbye to absolutely right. everything. I mean... And I think now the situation is much better because I see younger kids coming out really early and parents being supportive because it's talked about. And I feel mm -hmm. like back then if things were just talked about. And the law it, just so recently changed. Yeah. Like a couple of weeks, I think. Yeah. yeah? Um, it would have been amazing. Um, but it worked out for me. Everything worked out. Uh, because my, you worked your ass off. And my parents also were open-minded. Well, ultimately. Right, right. Right. So when I actually came out to them, they were fine. My dad was fine. My mother had struggled a little bit because she's Roman Catholic. Um, and so she felt because she had an uh, she had a love marriage with my dad, maybe she was being punished for that in some mm. way through me. Which is Oh, because she married him not in an arranged... Uh, she married someone out of her faith. She thought she was being punished for yeah, that, even was, though it was completely like heteronormative. Was, right. And um, because their families didn't talk for a really long time. She was disowned by her parents and then they came back. And after me and my sister were born. God, there's so much fear attached to religion. It is it's crazy, which is why I'm not at, I mean, I, I believe, but I, I'm not religious at all. And I don't like tradition. These are all the reasons also why I don't like tradition because I feel it's... Because you had to work against it your yeah. entire life. And I've seen my parents kind of struggle against it too. And I feel it's a chain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, so how, like, once you were able to come out and then mm -hmm. to your group of friends and community yeah. in Cincinnati and then ultimately your family mm -hmm. and really yourself, yeah. how did you, how did food play a role in your life at that point? And then how did you see, like, your cooking evolve as you evolved? So one of the things that happened when I came from India to America, I was... I had never traveled at all at that point because uh, my parents didn't have money. Right. Um, and then they said, when you make money, you should travel. You should pay for yourself to travel. Um, so when I came to America, I was in this new country now, and I wanted to experience the country for what it had to offer. And at that time, I really didn't think about diversity too much, but it was happening. It existed right in front of me, mm -hmm. even in a place like Cincinnati, uh, which, which is, is in the Midwest. fairly diverse, I mean, for the Midwest. Right. Um, but I was also coming from Bombay now, to be fair. So that's like a really totally. large city. So, yeah. uh, But in Cincinnati, I was surrounded by, um, like, you know, the Greek, traditional Orthodox Greek restaurants. You had uh, the Italian restaurants. Um, we even had, um, if I remember correctly, they had a good selection of Indian restaurants. But since I'd already come from India, I had no desire really to eat a lot of Indian food. I just wanted to see what was around me yeah. and explore. So, and I think that's where my scientific curiosity comes in. Um, so I spent most of my student budget just eating out. 
wherever I could. Um, and I wasn't really looking at that point to write a blog or a book or anything. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to have fun and eat good food. Um, so I started experiencing that. And then one of my closest friends, um, who's from New Orleans, I had come out to her. And her family, she's Indian, and her family lives in New Orleans. They became my family away from my family. Like, it was never, like, a thing. Like, I'd walk in and it was fine. So we would take these trips to New Orleans quite a bit. And that city is such a rich, vibrant food city. Um, and they use spices quite lavishly. Mm -hmm. um, so those flavors kind of reminded me of India in its, in its own unique way. And so I became emotionally connected to New Orleans, which is why I also went there for the book tour. And I, you just came from yeah. there, yeah. Um, and so all these elements in the country, and as I traveled and took vacations in, this, in the country, I started noticing all these things, how different parts of the states were also so different. And that reminded me of India, because even in India, like within a state, also food is so different. Yeah. I mean, even what you were saying at the beginning of the show, like how people didn't understand that like cake was a part of Indian yeah. food or, you know, everyone ate dal. It's, you know, people don't hear often don't understand Correct. like the specificity and like regionality right. of Indian food because yeah. our Indian restaurants tend to be so homogenous. Yeah. And also in another thing about Indian restaurants is that they're all Hindu based. Mm hmm. Ninety-five, I would say, maybe ninety percent of them are Hindu-based. The other part is based on the Mughal culture. So the Islamic, um, when the Islamic conquest happened in India, so the Mughal Empire that was established. So you have like the tandoori and the naan and all that stuff coming from there. Those aren't essentially like Hindu dishes. Hmm. Um, so it's all. So those two things became really popular when the first restaurants were established in Britain. And then that kind of set the stage for what Indian cuisine would be expected to be in the world. Uh, but then like other parts of the country, like South Indian food, and even within South Indian food, there's just so much variety. Um, all those things have been lost. They happen in India. They just don't come out here. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, the same thing was. In, but in America, I feel like cultures kind of own their own identity really well. And even within states. So, like, I know living in the Midwest, like Chile is a big thing they take a lot of pride in it um and um skyline right? skyline yeah yeah Sky <laughs> it's good chili. yeah i mean with all that cheddar on top and the cinnamon yeah <laughs> and they put cocoa oh that's what it is yeah, yeah. i'm from cleveland oh okay <laughs> um yeah so i think all these things just kind of like drew me and i said this is so amazing it's like my encyclopedia to the world mm. i don't need a plane ticket really to travel i can spend my money and try a bunch of different things at a much cheaper price point right um, and then I started entertaining friends who wanted to come over and cook and experience Indian food. So I would try and cook things for them. And then I would get questions. This is where it threw me off. I would get questions even from uh, like Indian people that grew up here. And they would say, I didn't know Indian people ate like meat, which was a very mm. odd question for me because I would say, really? Because like I've known the, these things historically in through my mom's culture or um, like even seafood, right? I would say, oh, like my grandmother used to make the best fried oysters and she was a semolina. And people would be like, really? And I said, yeah, I mean, we do eat other things. I mean, I come from like the coast. So seafood is going to be a really big part of my diet. Um, so these were the things that really confused me because I thought people took geography in school. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not that vast. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, honestly, Nick, like I, I feel like I, I have a master's in food studies as does Leah who's sitting right next to me. And I was like, Oh, there's oysters in season. Like that's cool and interesting. And like, <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to sound rude or pretentious. No, of course. But it was just like I always assumed that being coming to America, I was coming for higher education, right? So I assumed like everyone, because also I'm now an American citizen and I'm really proud to be one, but I have a passport which gives me the flexibility to travel across the world in many countries without a visa. And I was very shocked to find that people uh, hadn't done that. I didn't right. have the money as a child. Um, and I would see people with the, who were Americans at the time when I came to school who had never traveled. And they had the money, but they just had no desire. Mm -hmm. And that blew me away that you have everything in the world and you still don't want to see it. And you li life is so short. Yeah. We're told we're the best, so there's no need to <laughs> see anything else. We have it all here. <laughs> I mean, we do like right in cultures and restaurants. We that's do. I, I'm not saying that's how I feel. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm <laughs> I, saying I we do. We don't feel that because way. that was, became like my plan to kind of my way to see the world within America. But I didn't have the money or like I didn't want to deal with the visa thing and travel and yeah. all that stuff. But if I did, I probably would have. I would. Have, I mean, not probably. I would have done it. Yeah, no, it's it's a mind-boggling thing to come across people who have no desire to learn yeah, what life is it. like outside their front door. Correct, and I feel like if I can completely understand with money, it's expensive also. Not everyone can afford to do it, but it's the people that have the means to do it and no, have I know. no desire. Yeah, I don't know. I think, again, like fear is fear of the other, fear yeah. of like unknown. Scares everyone. Yeah, 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 I think that's part of it. Um, Nick, we're going to take a quick break. Okay. Just hear from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back. One Hundred Bogart has made much progress over the past year since their grand opening. They are a growing community of professional freelancers, entrepreneurs, and startups. Their dedicated team guarantees you receive a productive and worry-free work environment. One Hundred Bogart is currently filling up their two-person to twelve-person private offices. The spacious pop-up gallery, premier rooftop, and brand new full floor with terrace are available for your next event. Podcast rooms, conference rooms, and meeting spaces are also available for booking. 100 Bogart hosts events like art exhibitions, pop-up stores, product launches, and fashion shows. Heritage Radio Network is a proud member of the 100 Bogart community and often holds events in the building. Visit 100bogart.com to schedule a tour and learn more. Hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I'm in conversation in the studio with Nick Sharma. He is the author of the new gorgeous cookbook, Season. Welcome back. Hi, Thank Nick. Thank you. <laughs> Hi. Hi. Um, so we were just, just talking about how food became a big part of your life once you had moved to the United States and you were you were eating your way across the I country was, yeah. without having, having to go that far. <laughs> yes. So tell us more about that. So I got to go to my first Thanksgiving, which was really exciting. Um, I had never seen a big, so I always had chicken growing up, but seeing a big bird on the table was quite intimidating. Mm. Um, and I, and people, I was really um, fascinated with the turkey sheet that people had. So if so many guests were coming, you'd have to buy so many pounds. Wait, the turkey sheet? Yeah, so I may, it may not be a thing, but I remember <laughs> in Cincinnati, I going to my friend's house, her name was Olivia, and this was the first Thanksgiving, and they had a sheet. So if you, everybody had put like how many people they were inviting, based on that, they ordered a certain size of a bird to feed okay. everyone. And then 
there were all these like rules about how many like desserts would have to be made and sides and everything. Mm-hmm. Maybe your mother was like an intense planner. It sounds but, like that to me. Yeah. But there was, <laughs> she like, was a much more organized up. than my family was. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a sign up sheet. And so I said, wow, this is so fascinating. Like, did your family do that, Leah? No. Okay. My in-laws don't do that. I just think that's funny that you thought that was like an American custom. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh. Everyone, the turkey sheet. (laughs) Maybe they get it. They were just very OCD. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So like Thanksgiving was amazing. And then I moved to DC because what had happened was when I was in Ohio, I had come out, like I said, and I was still uncomfortable with myself being gay. Um, I needed a change. At the same time, uh, the Gulf War had just ended or it was still going on. I don't remember what the state of the country was at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the government was moving discretionary funding, so from research, into defense. Mm. And I was looking at my professors who are highly educated. They had spent their lives doing research. And in research, you sacrifice your lives, basically. You're sitting in a room. Mm-hmm. You never leave. You don't get family time. A lot of them are actually divorced or you know, depressed. Um, Science is what keeps them going. So I would watch them with MD, PhDs, MDs, PhDs, losing funding, unable to get R01 grants from the NIH. And that was very like soul crushing. I said, why am I going to spend my life studying all this stuff? And then there's no money. And I also needed a change for emotional reasons, like I said. So I said, you know what, I'm, I had passed my PhD qualifying exams and I think I had a year or two left or a year and a half left. And I said, I just don't want the PhD. Mm-hmm. I'm going to walk away from it. Smart. And I did. <laughs> yeah. I got a master's degree, which paid me a lot more uh, when I got a job at Georgetown. I worked there at the Department of Medicine. Um, and there I started doing medical research, which was exciting. Uh, so I was working with people and then also doing uh, pharmaceutical studies. Uh, where I felt like I was actually making an impact. So I worked there, I got a couple of papers published, and um, I was living in D.C. So I started meeting people who were in politics. Um, I had also, I was much more confident not coming out, so I had a really tight group of gay friends. Yeah. Uh, and I felt like I was at home, which was amazing. And then uh, the public policy bug bit, and I decided, oh, it might be a good idea to go to public policy school. So I was working... <laughs> During the day, I had two masters by then. Oh, my God. Like a crazy person. And then I decided I'm going to go to public policy school. So I went to Georgetown, got a degree in that. I was in a lot of academia. I needed, like, a channel. So all my friends said, you love to cook. Why don't you do this thing called a blog? So someone sent me, like, a couple of links. And I looked at, I think, it, um, some of the first ones were um, Deb Elman's blog. Mm-hmm. It's Kitchen. Yeah. And then David's blog. Uh, yeah, David Levitt's blog. Yeah. yeah. So those are the things that I would then, like, during the day, during experiments, I would just, we'd have long incubation periods waiting for, like, enzymes or whatever to function, to do their thing. And then I would just keep scrolling Hmm. through photos. And I said, this is so amazing. And then I would get really upset when they hadn't posted anything new because I'd already (laughs) seen everything. (laughs) Like, you're not keeping up here. Right, right. Um, And there weren't as many blogs back then. Yeah. (laughs) And and their content was also very emotional, well-written. Everything was just very very well thought. It was fun and so my friend said since you spend so much time doing all this why don't you start a blog that's how the blog came about a brown table a brown table yeah and uh the name was actually my husband's idea uh, i'm really bad at coming up with something catchy and <laughs> I, I don't know if he really is but he said we should just call it a brown table because you use two wooden planks 
on the two trash cans in the house to photograph. And you could, it, and I said, yeah, it could also be like a play on my skin color, which would be fun. And that's not what he was thinking when he suggested <laughs> it. <laughs> he was like, it's just, a, it was so literal. It was yeah, a brown table. Right. <laughs> there were two wooden planks from his parents' farm. That's hysterical. Oh, yeah. And so uh, that's how the brown table was, bo- uh, a brown table was born. Right. And then um, the beast kept pulling me in. You feed <laughs> the beast, it wants more, right? And so I kept like spending more and more time on the blog and I started falling in love with food, food culture, food writing, and the photography. And so I started to teach myself how to photograph at that point. Um, I didn't start out with a fancy camera. I got the cheapest thing I could afford, so I got a DSLR and um, started practicing with that. When I felt comfortable to kind of move on, graduate from that, then I started investing more and more Um, because that's an expensive habit. Yeah. But, I mean, well worth the investment, ultimately. Your photographs are so striking. And just like your food, they're so unique. They're so specific to you. They're so moody. They each tell such a story. I mean, it's just... I know I know it all started in your blog, but this book is so unique. And I think the 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 colors and they're like they're like dark and cool and like some of the pictures are like even a little like sinister. (laughs) Yeah. I see this is the thing I wanted to do even when I wrote the blog. I did not want to write about food that was already known. Right. Because people have already written about it. What am I contributing to the conversation, right? And so and the other thing with photography, I also wanted to do it my way, have my point of view. Um, and represent people who look like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't really show my face that often. I'm not, it's not that I'm uncomfortable, but I just kind of wanted to remove my face as a deciding factor. Mm-hmm. And so people could just imagine themselves in the kitchen cooking. Yeah. Well, I mean, to kind of fast forward and to expand on what you're talking about, I mean, I know you ultimately moved to San Francisco did, and then yeah. started writing a column um, for the San Francisco Chronicle, which was based on your blog. Correct. But um, I know you've talked a little bit too about like once you became a little bit more visible on your blog and showed your hands, yeah. like there were, there were some negative comments. Yeah. So this happened actually in DC. Okay. Um, so this was like at the early start when I started experimenting with instructional photos because I was experimenting and learning how to photograph and I needed to play as much as I could through trial and error and post. And, you know, and I said, I'll do that through the recipes that I post and then post photos. So I would get uh, comments about the color of my skin, about it being too ashy, too dark. I think one comment was like dark, burnt hockey pots or something. And what? I, I had never, exp- yeah, I had never experienced anonymous comments like, you know, that like you had never been trolled. I'd never been trolled. And yeah. I didn't know. And, and, and you know, the feeling that you get at that point it's it's so uncomfortable. It's like, uh, like your st- your tum- your stomach just sinks. Yeah, and you had already overcome so much in your life. I mean, right. to live, you know. I thought they would make fun of me because I was gay, right, not right, like right. my skin color. You're like, no, I've already like, like dealt with that, com- like gone past so many hurdles to become comfortable right. with who I am, and then and, to have people and this like, was like insult something your that skin. I had never had to think about because this was something I was born with. I saw it every day. And it was never like a question mark for me. The gay thing, obviously, like you realize it as a certain point in your life. So that's like, right? You're questioning that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that happened and that kind of made me retreat a little bit. I was uncomfortable. But then I, um, I decided to think about it a little bit more logically, like all scientists are trained to do. Mm-hmm. Um, like, do you stop completely? Or if you go ahead, then what next? And so I said, well, I could they could take away something that I really loved doing from me 
and that would actually be silly because then it's I'm at fault. Yeah, and they uh, win. Yeah, and I said, on the other hand, I could work really hard and just photograph to the best that I could so they would never be able to say anything to me again. I mean, it's just interesting how you've had to come to that crossroads, you know, more than once in your life. It's right. like what you said at, when we were first talking tonight. It's like you could have made the decision to be with a woman and right. have that relationship and, you know, never experience what it was like to really be yourself. Right. And that was a choice you could have made and stayed in India. But instead you said, no, I'm going to create an exit strategy here and figure out how to like live my life to the fullest. And that's right. what you did. Right. And then sort of you did that a second time when with you were had to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I'm not saying, but I will say this, the positive thing that came out of both those experiences in my life, they made me much more stronger than I, than I would have been otherwise. I'm also much more confident now so I can speak to you about it. Right. right? Um, and I also get an opportunity to share my story with people that might have been in a similar situation so they don't feel alone. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be anyone's role model um, because I feel role models, you they become like this thing of perfection and I'm not in any way. I have my flaws, but I think the main thing that I've always wanted to achieve after you know, having a fortunate experience in each of these cases is to show people that you're not alone and there you can overcome this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no need to get depressed. Yeah. Um, because I've been through that phase and I know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. I think it's also why people are so interested in hearing from you right now because your story is so much more than just food or just a cookbook with sure. recipes like there's such a complex journey that you've been able to put in this really like concise beautiful package and I think it's just made you you know it's made you who you are yeah and it's made you um just this like very nuanced like interesting person and it's part of why I think you're having so much success right now with this Thank book you. because it's like it's not just this two-dimensional like collection of recipes like it's this like it's this it's a struggle it's like this entire like accomplishment that's come out of like a really like tenuous thing you had to go through yeah I mean I this is what I wanted to do when I was writing the book I wasn't sure if I ever wanted to do a cookbook when the opportunity came and we worked on the proposal with my agent who is uh, like I call her my knight in shining armor all the time but um, when we worked on the book I told them that I was going to be very vulnerable in the process because I felt that I'm introducing myself to a whole new group of people right all over the world the book is a very different medium yeah. essentially for cooking for, for cookbooks and I said all the recipes that I always cook there's some kind of emotional element to it which is why I go out and do those things it might also be scientific because that's also a part of me how I was trained but there's also this emotional thing and I feel like the books that I have always been attracted to the books that I hold on dearly to are the ones that always had some kind of emotional element that drew me in and I said Sure, this is going to be a cookbook. This is also going to be sort of... It's not a memoir. I feel I feel like a memoir is like a big, fancy book. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is more like... It's also the beginning. Yeah, this is like, this is who I am. Um, I, this is why I think the way I think. This is why my food is the way it is. And I... There is a tension in my mind always about tradition and what's new, what's not. And I'm experiencing that through food and flavor. Um, and at the end of the day, I also love home cooks because those are like, I, I love, cook- that's who I want. Uh, those are the people that will cook my recipes, right? Yeah. And so I want them to have fun in the kitchen and also find confidence. 
Um, Because I feel that's what cooking can do. It can build your confidence, like it did for me. Yeah. So someone who is a home cook and is picking up your book for the first time, are there? Can you just highlight like maybe a couple recipes that? I mean, I don't think any of them are like incredibly challenging, but sure. just like a couple like go to ones that you really, really love and I think are yeah. like a great place to start. Yeah. So I like um, because I'm Indian, we try to do a lot of like sides and there's no such thing as a real main dish. We always do a lot of sides. One of the salads in the book, it's really simple. It's the cucumber cumin salad. Mm-hmm. All you need to do is take, I think it's like a half a teaspoon of cumin seeds, toast them and pound them a little bit into a powder, add them to chopped cucumbers, add a little bit of lime and salt. You can add a bit of fresh mint if you have some on hand. And that's it. You have a, like a fresh salad that's taken on the perfume of the toasted cumin. It's just like something so little making a big difference. Um, another thing um, in the book that I really love is the chocolate chip cookies, which seem to have strangely enough become a big hit. But <laughs> it's it sounds very... It, they call the spicy chocolate chip cookies and everyone wonders what's in them. The only thing that's... Probably you've never heard of is jaggery. That's the sweetener. It's the most unrefined form of sugar. It's basically sugarcane juice or palm cane, palm sugar juice that's uh, basically boiled down but not purified. So it still has a lot of minerality to it. And you can get it at any Indian store. They even now sell it powdered. Um, or you could use muscovado. And it's basically you put that in with your regular cookie stuff. It has hazelnut flour because it's gluten-free. Not intentionally, but because I love the combination of hazelnut and chocolate. Um, And then there's ginger, crystallized ginger and black pepper that make it spicy. Mm. And you already have those ingredients in your house. Um, So it's just like playing with flavor combinations in different ways. And you already have all these spices at home. So it's not really challenging. Um, The main thing is you just need to have those ingredients on hand or you go to the store and they're easily available. Yes. then there's something like, um, let's see, we're talking about seafood. So, um, actually, the oysters, mm-hmm. the broiled herb oysters, you, there's parmesan, there, there are a bunch of herbs that go into the, uh, what is it called, the in the blender. And you just fill the oysters up, stick them in the oven with the cheese and breadcrumbs on top and call it a day. Yum. Um, and then the hot green chutney, I was looking for ways to utilize all those leftover bits of arugula and uh, kale that I buy for my salad green. So I said, you know what? I'm going to make it into a chutney. So I threw those. I love the blender, but if you haven't uh, already like <laughs> figured that out. So I put everything in a blender. You get a sauce, which you can use as a dipping sauce, but you could also use it in your chicken and make a roasted chicken. So there are all these like fun, easy things that you already have on hand. What I'm doing is I'm taking everything that you that was probably already familiar to you, but using them in different ways, connecting different dots. Right. And that's what I try to do with my food because those recipes also have Indian elements, but they also have American elements in mm-hmm. them. And I'm what I'm basically doing with all my recipes and my writing is connecting my past, my future, and my present through food. Yeah. Um, well, it's beautiful. Thank Congratulations. You. Thank Tell you. us where we can keep up with you, find you on the internet. So you can find me on my blog, abrowntable.com. Um, and I have... Under the book page, under the book tab, I've got um, like the events and the, all the press and stuff that's going on while I'm traveling till, I think, the end of December. Uh, wow. Yeah. So you can stay in touch with me over there and I'll keep updating things as they progress. Yeah. Okay. 
And you're on Twitter, you're on Instagram. All those things, yeah. A brown table. It's all a brown table. Everybody. Okay, yeah. perfect. Um, Nick, thank you so much for making the time to come on the show. I wish you great success and fun and joy on your tour in easy flights and easy travel. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm so happy to, to meet you and know you and to be able to cook from your book. And it's just, well, thank you I wish so you much. all the best and just huge congratulations. Thank it's you just so been much. wonderful to watch. Um, thank you all for listening to Food Without Borders. Keep us... Keep us on your iTunes subscription and Spotify and Stitcher and just find us anytime on heritageradionetwork.org. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.